morning. Oh, it was wonderful to have the friendship class up here, wasn't it? And they just enhanced our worship and grateful for that. Um, great songs we sing this morning. I'm tempted to bring Dan back up and just keep singing. Uh, it's wonderful. But we'll turn to Acts chapter 3 now. Uh, so you can turn in your Bibles to the uh, book of Acts chapter 3 as we continue our series in this remarkable book of the Bible. You study it. You, you, you invest your time in this book as we go through um, this as a series. It's a wonderful book. Today, the sermon is going to center around one word, and that word is repentance. So I want to start with a simple question, and that is this. Is there an area of your life today that you're holding on to a sin struggle that you need to release to the Lord. And I want you to think about that question personally this morning. And we're going we're gonna to dig into this uh, as we talk about repentance today. Pray with me for the Lord's blessing on his word and then we'll turn to Acts 3. Father, we do pray for your rich blessing on the reading and preaching of your word that you would give us soft hearts and that you would truly change us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Acts 3 can be pretty simply divided into two parts, the miracle and then the message. Um, So let's look first at the miracle, starting in Acts 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John... We're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So in these first chapters of Acts, we see Peter, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John together quite a bit. And these two apostles are going into the temple at the hour of prayer. It's probably about 3 p.m. Um, if you remember, as you've read through the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the temple was the place of the presence of God. So it's where God's people would Go to worship him and serve him and find forgiveness and healing and uh, renewal in him. But when Jesus died on the cross, as we just sang, the curtain of the temple was torn. And what this represented was that God's presence was bursting out of the temple through his spirit into the world. Um, And now... God's people worship him and serve him and find healing and forgiveness and joy and life in Jesus by his spirit through the ministry of Jesus' disciples. So let's watch how that very thing happens, starting in verse 2 of Acts 3. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So we're introduced to a new individual in the story here. We don't know his name, but we do know that he's lame from birth, unable to walk, We find out later he's over 40 years old and he's likely not allowed to enter into the inner parts of the temple. And 
you think about this man, instead of going to work every day or spending time with his family, his daily routine was to be carried to outside of the temple to beg. What a sad, hard life. Year after year passed and not much changed for this man. But Peter and John, they're so much like Jesus, aren't they? They're so much like Jesus and they have compassion for this man and they don't ignore him. They intentionally engage him. I love the note of eye contact. Aren't, when someone gets saved, don't their eyes change? <laughs> Something happens there and these people say, they say, look at us. And, they make, and it indicates to us their, their intense engagement and care for this man because kingdom work is about to happen. The spirit is bursting forth. Verse six, let's read it. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up. Note, note that word leaping. Leaping up. He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So here's what Peter does. He commands, well, just imagine it, put yourself back there. He commands a lame man to walk and then he grabs him by the arm and raises him up. What the man does, he not only rises up and walks a miracle, but he walks and leaps and praises God in the temple. It's, it's incredible. I mean, this should just take our breath away, this healing miracle. Now, this is how all the people of God are supposed to be responding in the temple. Like, praise like we did this morning like this man is doing. That's what God deserves. And this man's leaping, you can just imagine him jumping in the air. His leaping is the fulfillment of a promise from Isaiah 35, verse six, all the way those years back when the Messiah comes and the lame will leap like a deer. And this man is just leaping with joy. So that's what Peter does. That's what the man does. What the people do, they realize this man couldn't walk. He can walk now. A healing miracle has happened to them, and they're filled with wonder and amazement. It says later in the text, they were utterly astounded. And the Bible never exaggerates. It's just amazing. We own two cats. Don't ask me how that happened. <laughs> two poor COVID decisions. That's what that was. Um, but they both have gotten a taste of the outdoors, so they're always itching to go outside. So about a month ago, we let the younger and less ex outdoor experienced cat go outside in the evening. Usually he'll come back by the time it gets really dark, but he didn't come back all night. And um, this was one of the coldest nights of the year. I don't know if you remember it, back in March, it got down into the single digits and coyotes are around our area, We've kind of woods beside our house. Well, the next night, I love going outside, making fires, I made, out, went outside, made a fire, coming back up onto the deck, and lo and behold, seemingly out of nowhere, there was the cat. 
And I had this really strange experience. You've probably had it before. It was the unique experience of I can't believe my eyes. My mind isn't computing what my eyes are telling me right now. Because in my mind, that cat was gone. And here he is before me alive. Uh, I was amazed. Could this be real? Am I dreaming? So this is just a teeny taste of what these people experienced back then. Here's a man lame for birth, from birth, and now he's walking and leaping and praising God. Are we dreaming? Is this real? They were utterly astounded. We might say breathless. I can't believe my eyes. And it raises, this miracle raises the question of miracles today. Can and should Christians today expect to perform miraculous healings? And that's a tough question. And I don't want to dodge that question. But I will say this. I believe that this passage doesn't speak to that question. Other passages in Scripture speak to the reality that Christians can have gifts of healing and what that may look like in the practice of the church. But this passage, and others like it in Acts, where there are dramatic, miraculous healings, I believe have to do with how God ordinarily works when the gospel goes to the unreached. Now track with me here. God, in a special way, confirms his powerful word by doing powerful, supernatural works to give extra strong support to that word when it goes to a group of people who have never heard the message of the gospel before. To put it another way, for a group of people who have never heard about Jesus, when the message of the gospel comes to them, God will often also bring with that message confirming miraculous proofs that the message is true and the messengers are truly from God. And so this leads us to verses 11 and 12. Look at these verses in your Bible. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? So the miracle is for the sake of the message. It's not the other way around. It's not like Peter preaches this amazing sermon and all these people gather and then he performs this miracle and says, hey, look at, look at this great uh, miracle of physical healing. It's the other way around. It's Jesus touches this man and heals him through Peter and then the crowd comes in order for the climax of the whole thing, which is the message about Jesus. And this is confirmed because Peter says, don't look at us. This is all about Jesus. This is all about his glory. And you know what? You can sniff out a hypocritical preacher when the message is more about the man than the Messiah. All good sermons point not to the preacher, 
but instead center on who our risen king is and what he has done for us. And boy, does Peter do that in his sermon in Acts 3. So let's look at the message. And how about we start with a grammar lesson? <laughs> uh, welcome to church. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to start with a grammar lesson. All right. But it's important. Verse 19. There's one word that I believe the entire sermon drives toward, and it is the word in verse 19, repent. It's the word repent, and then the similar idea a few words later, turn back. And both of these words in the original language are imperatives, they're commands. And you'll notice that they're the only two words in Peter's entire sermon that are commands. Okay, then notice the word that comes immediately after repent. Look at it there in your Bible. It's the word therefore. And if you look carefully and study the structure of Peter's sermon, you'll see that the therefore means that everything that comes before the command to repent in Peter's sermon is a basis, a foundation for repentance. And you'll also notice that verses 22 through 26, look at it there in your Bible, verses 22 through 26, serve as more foundation, more basis for this call to repent. What am I trying to say? Here it is. Think of it like this. I like to chop wood. And I generally use a splitting maul when I chop wood. And if you've ever held a maul like this, you know that there is a lot of weight on the back of the iron. Okay? And then it all comes to a point at this sharp splitting edge. Why? Because the weight of that back end will help the cutting edge to better crack and penetrate the wood and thus split it more effectively. Acts 3.19 and specifically the word repent is like the sharp splitting edge of the weighty maul. It's intended to crack and penetrate our hearts. But the call to repent comes with such massive weight upon us and the power to crack us open and penetrate our hearts because of the heavy weight reasons that go behind and underneath the call to repent. Listen, this, what I'm doing here this morning and what we do here Sunday by Sunday is not about mere intellectual stimulation. It is not mainly about becoming proper theologians. This is not a performance. This is not a speaking event. This is about our lives. This is about the transformation of our lives that we desperately need. And so let's get real this morning about what's going on in our lives and where we need to turn to the Lord. This Peter's sermon, in other words, is about true repentance and nothing less. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to list four reasons to repent that Peter gives us. Then we'll talk about repentance itself. And then we'll talk about three remarkable blessings that come from repentance. So four reasons to repent. Reason number one, we stand guilty 
before God because of our personal sin against him. We stand guilty before God because of our personal sin against him. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So we could make a good argument that these people that Peter is talking to have committed the worst evil in human history. Worse than the worst murderers. Worse than the worst abuse. Worse than the worst and most profound betrayal and whatever other evil anyone has committed in human history. This was profound wickedness. These people killed the Son of God. They disowned and rejected the one chosen by God to be the king of the world. They sent to the curse of the cross the one who is holy and righteous and pure. They put to death the author of life. And Peter courageously addresses these people's sin. He calls them out, doesn't he? He looks at these people in the eyes and he basically says, you've committed great evil. And who knows how they're going to respond. They may hate him. They may kill him. They may throw him into prison. But Peter is bold. And they do throw him into prison. We're going to find that out next week. Three times, Peter says in three different ways what they've done. You delivered over and denied Jesus in the presence of Pilate. Verse 13. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Verse 14. You killed the author of life. Verse 15. And he's not being unnecessarily mean or certainly not unfair. In fact, this is bold love. To talk honestly about sin takes great love for people and boldness before God. You see, if these people are ever going to repent and turn to Jesus in faith, they must first understand how deeply they've sinned against God and so for us. We too stand guilty before God outside of Christ and in desperate need because of our personal, individual sin against him. That's reality. Sins of pride, sins of lust, sins of greed, sins of selfishness, sins of, God, I don't want you in my life. I'd rather live life my own way. Be gone. And if 
when that's in our hearts, which it is by nature, are we so different from these people back then? All they wanted was Jesus gone, dead. And that is the fundamental longing of our hearts from birth outside of Christ. We, you see, we'll never have the joy of repentance until we see the seriousness of what we need to repent of. It starts here. Reason to repent number two. God planned the suffering of his son for our salvation. Look at verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And then rewind to verse 13. Look at verse 13, where Jesus is called the servant. And then fast forward to verse 26, where Jesus is again called the servant. And what comes into our minds when we think about servant? What comes into my, my mind is Isaiah, and particularly Isaiah 53, where it talks about the servant of the Lord who suffers for the sins of his people and then is exalted. And this is Jesus. This is Jesus. You see, Jesus' suffering had purpose. It wasn't as if the people back then who put him on the cross were in control of all the events as much as they may have thought they were. God was in control. You know, we're entering into Holy Week and as we think about Jesus entering into Jerusalem and then as we fast forward to the Passover meal with the disciples and then his time in the Garden of Gethsemane and his betrayal and arrest and trial and then going outside of Jerusalem to be, to be hung on that cross and we think about all these events, God was doing all of that. The, the literal physical footsteps of Jesus. God was behind all of that until he hung on the cross and suffered and died. But how does this motivate us to repent? Here's how. It's, it's not only that we've sinned against God, we're guilty before him, we stand under his judgment, period. If that was the case, we would all be in big trouble. But God sent his son to suffer for our sins. What good news. So he has made a way for us to be saved from our sins. This is the mysterious, radical grace of God for us. So run to the Lord. What's holding you back today? He, God has sent his son so that the moment you come back to him, he will receive you with open arms. So don't wait. Come to him. Come to him. Don't, what are you holding on to that you won't release to the Lord? Come to him. He will receive you. That's what, this is what the gospel is all about. Reason to repent. Number three, those who do not heed Jesus' words to follow him will perish. Look at verse 22. Repent. Why? Well, Moses said, the, God, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
So Peter quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 18. And I'll read this for you. You don't need to turn there, um, but I'll read Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 19. It says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require him. So it's very clear that the words, Jesus is that great prophet that Moses foretold. The words Jesus spoke were the very words of God. Therefore, to reject the words of Jesus is to reject the word of God. And to reject the word of God is to reject God. And to reject God is to cut yourself off from eternal life with him. And so it is of utmost importance that we listen to the words of Jesus and obey him, obey his voice. Jesus is the great prophet that we must listen to. So what does he say? What does Jesus say to us even this morning? Jesus is alive today And here's what he's saying. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. (laughs) What a welcome invitation for us weary sinners. He says, lay it down at my feet and come to me. Will we listen to this great prophet. Reason to repent, number four, right here and right now is the best place and the best time to turn to God. Right here, right now. Look at verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, let's dig in here. What does it mean that in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed? Well, sometimes in the Bible, Abraham's offspring, many generations later, is one person, one child, Jesus, who's going to bring blessing to all the nations. But I don't think that's what Peter's talking about here. Here, Peter seems to have a different idea in mind when he talks about Abraham's offspring. Here, Peter is referring to Jewish believers in Jesus. And we'll see as as we keep studying through the book of Acts that the gospel goes to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And who's responding to the gospel? Well, it's Jewish believers. And then those Jewish believers are going to take the gospel and spread uh, uh, the name of Jesus to the Gentiles, to the nations. And so there's fulfillment of this prophecy that Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people, are bringing blessing to the nations. Think about Paul, this Jewish man who's powerfully responded to the gospel and he's bringing the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. Um, it's this beautiful picture. But what is just astounding to me is that over the course of 2,000 years, the gospel has just exploded. How did this happen? 
How are we today hearing a message in the suburbs of Chicago, a message about Jesus? It just exploded from Jerusalem. And so just like those Jewish people back then in the first century who heard about Jesus dying for their sins and rising from the dead, they had no excuse for not repenting. They heard a clear message of the gospel. And so we today, sorry, you're here. You've heard the message. No more excuse. In other words, we can't claim ignorance anymore. There's no excuse for not turning to God. And the time is ripe for repentance. Peter's saying to these people, look, these are the days we've all been waiting for. The Messiah has come. Now is the time to repent. Now, 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 today. Don't say, when I get older. You don't know if you're going to get older. Now is the time that Jesus is saying, come on in to my presence and kingdom through repentance. So we have splitting mall weight right here in Acts 3. We have massively weighty reasons to repent. So let's talk about repentance. Repentance, here, this is all repentance is. Repentance is giving up on what's hurting you. It's, in, a, in that sense, it's very logical like, to, to re- pursue repentance. It's turning to Jesus who all he does is heals and brings joy. That's who he is. That's what repentance is. And so today, let's receive from God's word a sober call to repentance. If you're not a believer, someone who's trusted in Christ for salvation, and maybe today you're here and you're just, you've never been to church or you've haven't been to church in a long time, you're just exploring Christianity. You would say, if I talked to you after a service, you'd say, no, I'm not a Christian. Or maybe today you're someone who's saying, I come to church a lot, but in my heart of hearts, deep down, I'm on the throne of my life. Jesus isn't. If that's you, can I just simply invite you to pray a prayer right now that has three parts? Will you pray, even right now, where you're at, God, show me how I've sinned against you and need your forgiveness. And God, will you show me that Jesus is a great Savior of people like me who have sinned against you? And God, would you soften my heart even right now, so that you would cause me to repent and turn to you. Would you just pray those types of prayers until you're sure that God has worked the miracle of repentance in your life? I'd invite you to do that. For those of you who have trusted in Christ, where, where is that hidden area that maybe you don't want? anyone else to know about where you're holding on to that dear hidden sin and you just don't want to give it up. The Lord is calling you today 
release it for your joy. For your joy, release it and come to me. Repent, turn back with all your heart, follow the Lord. Now, we must not think that repentance is a hard word. It's not a downer word. Um, it's, it, re- repentance isn't a call into a life of misery. It's actually quite the opposite. It's a call into solid joy. And so I want to finish by talking about three blessings of repentance that Peter gives us here. Blessing number one, sins forgiven. Look at verse 19. Go back to Acts 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The picture is of washing, removal of what is unclean. Our sins dirty us and make us spiritually filthy before God. But what Jesus came to do was to totally blot out all of our sins. And so maybe you've had a terrible week this week and you've fallen again into that same sin and you feel dirty before God this morning. And I can promise you, person who has trusted in Christ, your sins are washed clean, completely forgiven. Rest in this reality and then keep living a life of repentance. Blessing number two, refreshing from the Lord's presence. Look at verses 19 through 20. Repent therefore and turn back. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. When we repent, we welcome the Lord's presence into our lives. And when we welcome the Lord's presence into our lives, we welcome his joy. And I love this word. We welcome his refreshment. I played soccer in high school. I remember one practice in particular Really hot. It's the end of the summer. Long practice. Not many breaks. Forgot my water bottle, of course. So a break comes. I run a few hundred yards to the gymnasium, the water fountain. The basketball team is having a break at the same time. So there's this long line at the water fountain. And I'm at the back of it, and I'm just waiting, waiting. You've been there before. So thirsty. Waiting, waiting. And I finally get to that water fountain. The water is so cold. And it tasted so good. So good. I wouldn't have asked for any other drink in that moment. Listen, it was pure refreshment. Don't you long for that spiritually? Have you been in a desert wasteland spiritually because maybe because you've been far from the Lord? The promise upon repentance that Peter gives us is spiritual renewal. Remember when I first repented of my sins and trusted in Jesus at Taylor University in college, and it was like I'd never experienced life before. It was like I had never, ever, ever experienced joy before. You know, some people look back on their college years as the glory years because of all the frat parties they attended or all the relationships they'd had or their physical or athletic prowess at that point. But my college years were my glory years because they were those early days of Jesus's life and joy flooding into my heart in a special, almost like protected way. See, Jesus is inviting you today into this, into repentance. Jesus is inviting you today 
into refreshment from his presence. He's inviting you into solid, solid joy that the world can't offer. Blessing three, hastening the second coming of the Lord. Look again at Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, dot, 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 that the Lord may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. So the last blessing of repentance is that we hasten the second coming of Christ. As a church, this is a mystery how this works, but as a church, um, as we live lives of repentance, we prepare ourselves for the second coming of Christ. I believe this is particularly true for the Israelite people that Peter was speaking to then, and that there will be a mass revival of the Israelite people soon before Jesus returns. You could check out Romans 11. But I believe that there's a broader principle here that Peter even talks about in 2 Peter chapter 3, where as a church we hasten the coming of the Lord as we live lives of repentance. Don't you want to be found ready when Jesus comes back? Uh, Keith Green is one of my favorite musical artists, and he wrote a song called Glory, Lord Jesus, and you've heard it before. And he says this, Glory, Lord Jesus, glory to your holy name. Glory, Lord Jesus, your blood, it has removed my shame. When this, I'm about to start singing it. <laughs> I'll spare you that. That'd be bad. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Well, I hope so. I want to be found ready. I want to be found ready. I want to be ready. Lord, help me be ready. Please help me be found ready. I want to be ready. Oh, Lord, help me be ready. I want to be found ready. I want to be ready. Lord, help me be ready. You can imagine Keith Green on his piano with his big fro flopping all over the place pouring out his heart on that piano. I want to be ready, Lord. Is that the cry of your heart today? Lord, he's coming. Jesus is coming back soon, isn't he? He really is. That day is hastening. And let us be found ready through lives of repentance. We're going to sin we are. That's why we need, to, that's why repentance is needed. Um, but let's stay fresh with that, with our repentance. You know, sin, it promises so much and delivers so little, ultimately. The Lord, he promises so much and delivers in full and forever. So, Let's live these lives that Jesus, our King, is calling us to. Let's pray.